my friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Live, Learn, Lead with me, Alison Geskin. How do we lead? We know that much of leadership is and always will be an inside job. We know that when we focus on being our best selves, we can achieve great outcomes. And yet, most of us are not where we want to be. So much of what we do focuses on the what and the how, and often it's the who that gets lost in the mix. Success, my friends, is not by accident. And today, we're going to spend an hour with Joss Willard, whose mission is to help good people build profitable lives and achieve extraordinary goals. Joss helps his clients get rewarded for making positive impacts in the world, living from their values, and serving exactly the people they're meant to serve. And this, my friends, is Leadership in Action. Thanks, Allison. Apparently, I just sat on a pin or something because that was that was. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Allison. How are you? Great to be here. Thanks for I'm having me so on. So glad you said yes. I'm so glad you said yes. I have a question for you. Sure, bring it. Everything that has led you to now, what would you say is the most critical skill or experience or competency that has allowed you to thrive? I think for me, it's always been. And this is, this is what got me in trouble as a kid. The ability to listen to other people, hear where they're coming from, and both objectively and subjectively evaluate that without judging it. So objectively, as I can look at something and go, that objectively doesn't seem true or doesn't seem aligned or doesn't seem to actually fit what's going on. So I can ask more questions and find out why and figure out where that disconnect is. And being, cur- and being curious about that. Whereas subjectively be able to go, I totally understand why a person in your position would feel that way or would think that way or would have that reaction. I've had that ability since I was very young. I haven't always used it well. I'm a university trained debater, so I've, I know how to turn off my empathy <laughs> <laughs> to score points. But I think really that's probably the skill set. And it's, it's just being willing mm. to listen without immediately judging, right? And then being able to turn around and and think about how do I respond to this in a way that gets my point across without abandoning where I'm standing and without also being an overbearing jerk that's absolutely dismissive of the other person's values, positions, life experience, et cetera. Yeah. How do you, how does one work that? Like, how would you recommend one to practice that? Oftentimes, I mean, communication, as you know, is, can be the best and can be the worst of anything. How do you put that into practice? How do you develop a habit around that? For me, it's not an automatic. I'm one of those people that can't stick with a system for a long, any long period of time. Right. I'll, I'll get bored with it or I'll try and tweak it. And then that sends it, you know, you've got it perfectly balanced and something you decide to tweak it and it goes flying off into the distance. That's my life with systems. So like a ritual that allows that or a consistent system that allows that I've always been that person that if I blow up at you, we're still okay. If the emotion goes off, it's when I get cold, calm and quiet with you that we're in trouble. And so I'm not sure that that this has a direct answer, but it'll, we'll get there. We'll take the, the windy route. For me, the advantage of that has been if I blow up, I can immediately go, okay, I just blew up. Why did I blow up? 
sorry, let's apologize for that and deal with that and, and move forward. Or I can come back around to it. If I'm getting really angry, I get very cold. I get very hard on the facts and very deliberate about what I'm saying and why I'm saying it, which also helps because I'm thinking about what I'm saying and why I'm saying it. It's just, if I'm really angry with you, I'm not going to care so much about what there is, what your feelings about it are. Or maybe I do. I just don't, I'm not interested in them being happy. Fortunately, I haven't done that in a long, long time because I've gotten better at stopping myself at the explosion point and kind of going, and the explosion point for me is like, oh, that's dude, that's not cool. That's that's about as explosive as I as I get right off the hop. So I but I think it's because I learned to ask the question: Why would a reasonably intelligent, well-meaning human say or do what that person just say or did? Because I, I try to assume that the person in front of me is reasonably intelligent and well-meaning. Sometimes I have to remind myself that I need to assume that the person in front of me is reasonably intelligent and well-meaning, particularly when I'm driving. Oh, the dreaded assumptions. Well, and I think like if. I think that's part of why we get that. So just to go completely rabbit hole, when people are driving, I think that one of the reasons why we get so offensive is because we don't have that actual communication, right? Because half the time they're not using the one thing we have as communication is the blinker. We don't have any any way of communicating and we literally have walls between us. We're in our, our own bubbles. And so it's the the assumption of that this person has some sort of animus towards us as to why they're cutting us off. They're not cutting us off just because like us at some point, because none of us have ever done this before, they looked at their Google Maps or their Apple Maps or whatever their GPS was. And the GPS suddenly said, you know, it had been saying, go straight for one quarter of a mile. And all of a sudden it's, no, take this exit here. Oh crap, gotta go. Right? It couldn't be that. It's gotta be that there's something mentally defective with them and, or they hate us and they're really just trying to drive us off the, the side of the road. There's zero communication and, and the bubble is completely there. And I think we can do that outside of the car too. Yeah. Right. When we talk with people, especially if we've been in this bubble of hearing the same things, the things that we agree with all the time, or the people who have, like, I'm a big believer that you are, to a certain extent, the average of the five people you spend the most time with. You need to have people around you who share your values and will hold you accountable to your values. But I don't think that everyone around you should be thinking the same way you do, having the exact same values you do, or interpreting the same values in the same way. And I think it can be good to have someone that has a different value or interprets this what is the same value in a different way. I think it's good to have some of those people around because they will hold you to yours. They'll call you on your on it when you step off of your values. Well, and challenge you too to think yeah. deeper. Yeah. My 15-year-old daughter, we're driving down the highway. There's in front of me. Oh. And so of course I drop an F-bomb and call them all sorts of names because that was very dangerous. And I was like, what an asshole. And my 50-year-old looks at me and she goes, how do you know he doesn't have diarrhea? <laughs> how do you know his wife isn't in the hospital? How do you know he's not going off to save someone's life? And I thought, oh, shit, how can my kid be so goddamn wise? Dad probably say something along the lines of, because if there was any of those things, he would have used his darn blinker. <laughs> but it teaches us that you know our world and what happens to us and we're a reflection to us, the key thing. I think just circling back to kind of where we started was, you know, your ability to listen to others. And that's really hard to do because most conversations, most time we just sort of scratch on the surface. We can get distracted. We can, you know, do other things. We can think about, oh, I should pick up this and I've got to do this. And oh, I forgot this. And or even worse, I'm already thinking of an answer to answer you back. How do you create a habit around your ability to listen and see things from another person's perspective while putting your whatever bias, perceptions, limiting beliefs, ego at the end and look at them 
to say, well, that's their experience. How do you get good at that? Because I think you're really good at that. It's falling in love with the word why. It's, mm. it's becoming legitimately curious. Like the biggest mistake that we tend to make, especially if you're in an expert space, like I'm a coach, so I'm constantly an expert, right? Using air quotes, is we think we know mm. and we stop being curious. One of the biggest challenges as a business coach is to not come off as an arrogant know-it-all. And so I work in the business coaching space. Obviously, I also do the, the person side of coaching. But in the business space, you will constantly have business owners come to you and they say, five minutes in to their, their spiel about what's going on with them, you know what's wrong. Like you, you know what the problem is. But if you immediately go, oh, you're one of those, here's the problem, here's how I solve it, blah, 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 blah. while it feels like you're saving time because, oh, they don't have to spend another half an hour elaborating about all their problems with me. I can help them. I can get right to the root of it. I can help them solve the problem. I look smart. They know they've hired an expert. Everything's great. What actually happens is they don't feel heard. They feel like you've put them in a box. And as much as we love as humans to put everybody else into their own boxes, mm -hmm. we hate being put into a box by other people. Indeed. So- but we want everybody else to be in their box. And yeah. if they try and get out of that box, like, no, back, get back <laughs> in the box, right? I need to be able to predict how you're going to respond to my life. I'm the star of this story. Get back in your box. But if everybody's doing that, there's a problem. We think we know, right? And so when we tell somebody, here's your answer, they're like, well, how do you know? You haven't. It's like if you went to the doctor and you, you sat in the waiting room for 15, 20, 30 minutes, however long it's been, and you go into the office and the nurse comes in and you know asks you a couple of questions and does your height, weight, whatever, does your blood pressure, and then walks out. And the doctor comes in, I oh, says, so here's, your, here's your prescription. My prescription for what? What do you mean? Like, what? If the doctor spends no time asking you what your symptoms are, looking for the signs of different things that might be wrong with you and investigating, okay, where were you when this started happening? What were you doing, et cetera, et cetera. If the doctor doesn't get curious about you and about what you're presenting, just giving you a prescription is malpractice. It's the same thing with coaching. And it's the same thing in everyday life. If we start just automatically putting people in a box saying, oh, I know what you're going to say. Oh, I, I know what you're thinking. Oh, you're one of those people because you said this magic phrase. When we stop getting curious, we start thinking we know everything. Then we start talking right past each other. So really being innately curious, asking deeper questions, putting your own ideas of what that person should be and just allow them to be mm -hmm. is what I'm hearing is probably really great advice. Well, I'd hope so. It's, it's advice that I have worked hard to implement in my own <laughs> life. And then there's the, from, from the pure, I'm a, okay. So again, university trained debater. So I, I didn't know you could do this when I went to university, but you get trained how to win arguments regardless of the facts, mm -hmm. regardless of the situation here, you just, you're trained on, on how to win. And if you're that type of person and you like that, that idea, you want to be that kind of person, one of the things you realize very quickly is the best way to do that, to set yourself up for the killing blow or the winning stroke is listen to the other person and let themselves set themselves up. So either mm. way, whether you're trying to be empathetic or you're just looking for the, to you know, own the whoever's, listening is the key. And then how much of listening do you work with with your own clients in your own practice? How much of a core competency is that, would you think, for business owners, business leaders? I think it's a requirement. I think yeah. if you're going to be successful, you have to be... And it's not just listening, because if you just sit there and listen, mm -hmm. that's what you get. That's right. Pure silence, right? The other person has to be willing to talk. So asking the question and then listening to the answers. And you can do that without abandoning your position, where you're coming from, 
uh, the point that you need to make, like if you're in a leadership role and let's say you have to have an accountability conversation with somebody, it's not a case of just, you need to sit there and let me dress you up and down and tell you what's wrong and what you've did terrible and how you got to shape up or ship out and blah, blah, blah. That's not leadership. It feels good sometimes. Like sometimes we just, we just want to vent. <laughs> I highly recommend not doing that directly to the person. Do that with, you know, set up a large stuffed bear or something or your cat or whoever, and then apologize to the, whoever it is after, but somebody <laughs> other than, then you can go in and call them. But asking the question, so Chris Voss, I'm bouncing all over the place, right? Chris, Chris Voss in his book, Never Split the Difference, which is a great book about negotiation. He talks about the phrase that can absolutely wreck any type of influence that you're trying to create with someone. And it is the phrase, you're right. When someone tells you you're right, you've lost because it's you. It's external. So many times you'll have somebody tell you, oh, you're absolutely right. And then sometimes if they're being honest, they'll follow up with a, but I'm not going to do it anyway. Here's why. Or, but I can't do that. There's some sort of objection. Coming. You're right, but. But often we won't even get the but. It'll just be, yeah, you're right. Which is basically, please shut up and stop talking. I don't want to hear anymore. It's about as bad as saying, everything's fine. Yep. If you can get the phrase, that's right mm-hmm. from someone. Because you've got agreement. Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. they're accepting this is reality or this is, this is the correct thing. It might not be what they want. My understanding is your vehicle was in the middle of the intersection when the other vehicle plowed into you. And according to the camera here that we have the video of, it looks like the light on your side is red. Is that right? I'm like, yeah, that's right. Okay. Consensus. Yeah. But, that's, but there's where it is. Mm-hmm. And if you're like, no, that's not right. Okay, great. Well, then what is right? Where am I wrong? Tell me how we've we've missed it. That then gives them the chance to engage and to tell you, no, this is my version of reality. This is what I'm seeing. This is how I'm reacting. Because we don't react to reality. We react to our perceptions, right? That's right. So thank you. You caught that, eh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when we can get that consensus, we can get that's right. Now we have a place to move from. And if we don't get that's right, if we get, no, that's not correct. Great. Now we know the point on which we're disagreeing and we can start addressing that and mm-hmm. talking about it. As opposed to the false yes, which is another concept from Never Split the Difference. We, we've been trained. The yes ladder is a thing we've been trained to use since the 1970s, right? Get them to say yes as many times as possible. You ever go to events where there's a leader on stage and you're like, all right, everybody say yes. Yeah. All right. You know, they'll try and get you to say yes, like five times or raise your hand, like five times they're trying to put, you know, use, uh, they're trying to use NLP to anchor you. And what's been taught is if you can get someone to say, yeah, you get them past the first yes, it's easier for them to continue to say yes. And that's fine. But we've used it so much in our society that now psychologically we will give a false yes just to get you to shut up and go away. Yes. Oh, sorry. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and the same thing applies with you're right. It's like, yeah, you're right. Yes, I'll say whatever just to get you to shut up. If you're in a leadership position and you're particularly you're having to have one of those awkward, crucial accountability conversations, asking questions, getting to that's right, getting to that consensus of here's the actual issue or here's where we disagree, staking the claims, defining terms, laying out this is the land, this is where we're at. Now we can go somewhere from that. And as a leader, you can still do that from a position of curiosity. Yeah. Right. Like, even if your curiosity position is, what on earth possessed you to think you could do that here? <laughs> uh, At least you're curious about something. <laughs> like, I'm not sure why you thought that it was okay to just, you know, drop trow and copy your, your buttocks for the rest of the, the company for the Christmas, office Christmas party. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you did. <laughs> so please enlighten me on what your thought process was and how you got to this conclusion. What is the one mistake 
that you see leaders, business owners make more frequently than others? Possible. Is there one industry you haven't worked with yet? Like broad strokes, probably not. I know the industries I'm not good at. I don't do rest. I don't do food, basically. I don't do restaurants or bars just because I appreciate great food and I appreciate great customer service. And I don't want to be in a bar or restaurant going, running my coach brain on, oh, no, you brought that. That took two minutes and 57 seconds to get to the table. Really should be under 230. Like also there's really narrow margins there. So yeah, not not my world. I just enjoy being, you know, eating the food and, and going on. So I, I'm, I don't work in in food. I don't work in in fashion retail. Like your typical store in a mall, I'm probably not going to going to work with. And now I might work with their team. I might work with their leads as yep. far as being a leader, dealing with their own personal stuff and and how they show up in the business. But I'm not going to be out there helping them make the store more profitable. So what would be the common theme if you could, you know, fly at that fifty thousand foot level, look at all of the industries, you know, and businesses from startup, scale up, enterprise mm-hmm. level? Is there a common theme that emerges that you see people, leaders, owners make mistakes more frequently than other mistakes? One, well, <laughs> it depends on which side we're looking at. If we're looking at it from the business side, cash flow management okay. is always a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and cash flow management and people management. And then from the personal side, because 90% of business problems are personal problems showing up in your business, not separating self from moment. Ooh, what does that mean? So how often have you said, I'm angry, I'm tired, I'm pissed, I'm whatever. And as an owner, oh, I'm I'm so upset. I'm so disappointed. I'm whatever. Are you really disappointed? Like, is that who you are? You're disappointed? Like, mm-hmm. that's. And so, what we do is we don't create that space. And this gets into a little bit of cognitive behavioral theory. Actually, it's not theory, it's cognitive behavioral model. Some other things. Tony Robbins has a basically, there are three legs to any, to the stool that are any state that you're in. And it really comes down to when you say, I'm mad, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm tired. There's no space there. So it's me. I am this thing. And therefore, your ego has to embody this thing. When you're making decisions in your business or in your job, in your role as a leader, you will make the decisions based on being that thing. And it sounds very woo. And I'm not a huge woo guy. I speak the whole scale from zero to to complete spacey woo, but I'm probably more of a of a five, six myself. So it sounds sort of woo, but to get into the, sort of the the hard science of it, if you will. Yep. Psychologically, we've found that if we can create that space, I'm feeling this or I'm experiencing this, mm-hmm. it gives our brain just that little gap to go, okay, this is a situation. I can redirect my focus and look at how to fix it or how to change it or whatever the case may be. And, and your ego steps out of, I have to protect the fact that I'm angry or I have to protect the fact that I'm right. Right. And, and so when we can do that, it allows us to make decisions differently. Our, our I hate this term is so overused, but our identity as the angry person, as the boss who's been betrayed. Mm. But even if you turn it out of that into as the struggling business owner mm. or as the plumber or as the doctor, when in fact, the way we need to be making the decision in this case is as the owner of a successful plumbing company or as the owner of a medical facility or as a boss who's experiencing frustration with employees. When we do that, we're making different decisions than the plumber, the doctor, the pissed off guy. Yeah. Have you ever done any reading or watched Jill Bolte-Taylor? I don't think I have. She has an amazing story. So she is a neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. 
and she had the most incredible experience in that she suffered a massive stroke. And so she had the unique privilege to watch her body function shut down one by one. And then it became her life's work to understand the brain's journey and how the brain works and our functions of it. And so she, after she you know, came all the way down to having no functions, built up back all of her functions, did all of her testing around that. She wrote a, I think her TED talk is called My Stroke of Insight. Anyways, she found that chemically, anger is real. But chemically, anger only lasts in our body for 90 seconds. And after 90 seconds, that anger is a choice. Mm-hmm. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. This is why I love cogn- the cognitive behavioral model, mm-hmm. because it ties in so well with neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Because we talk about in, and I'm not a therapist, I'm not a psychologist, do not have that training. I've just spent a ton of time both on the couch, but also reading, educating, et cetera. But in there, we talk about you have thoughts, cognition, yeah. you have emotions, and you have behaviors. All three of them affect each other, right? It's a double triangle. It's a, it's a triangle and you've got the two arrows on the each end of each thing. So your, your thoughts will affect your emotions and will affect your behaviors. Your emotions will affect your behaviors and your thoughts. Your behaviors can affect your emotions and your thoughts. This is why I don't feel like doing that. I just like more often than not, if you actually start doing it, you'll find halfway through that suddenly you feel like doing it because mm-hmm. you're doing it. But the fact is what we do is we have that quick, immediate response. And yes, the body, the brain floods the body with whatever the hormones are that are response to that thought. But even briefer before that, like in the middle, it happens super briefly, but we we interpret something happens and we interpret and have a thought about what that is, what that means, which Mm -hmm. then leads to this means danger, drop the the fight or flight and spike the cortisol, spike the Mm -hmm. cortisol and the adrenaline, do the things that will take years off of our life long-term to give us whatever years we have left. So we don't lose our life in two seconds, right? Because our meaning is that's dangerous or our meaning is. I should be angry about that. And 90% of the time when we feel angry, it comes from a place where we feel like we lack significance or we haven't been given the proper significance. And significance is usually a comparative value. And folks tend to think that significance is all about ego. And to a certain extent, ego is definitely wrapped up in there. But we think significance is selfish, right? I have to be important. When in fact, oftentimes significance is comparative, external, and about what we think is fair or right. Gandhi, who everyone thinks of as the no ego, he, he made change and suffered for his people, et cetera, et cetera. Well, yeah, but it was for his people. Significance drove a lot of his decision-making because he looked at how his people were treated and said, that's not fair. And so he then chose to do something about it. He got angry about it, but like you said, then he made the choice to do something nonviolent about it rather than holding on to this anger and going, this is like, there's so many throughout history, you see so many examples of people who took this anger that came from a feeling of violation of significance. Some held on to it and they're known for being raging. Some of them accomplished positive things, but a lot of them, they're known as these very angry, bitter people. And then others took that same anger, felt it, made a choice to turn it into something positive, let the anger part of it go, but were still driven by this need for significance, for fairness, for balance, and did something about it positively. How do we ensure that our reaction, what we're thinking, what we're seeing, what we're feeling is not coming from a place of me, of my own significance, but a wider, more holistic approach to to a combat, a problem, a, a process, a people problem. But how do we, as human beings, guard ourselves with the knowledge that there is a better way? You said originally, how do we make sure that it's 
that our anger or that our emotion isn't coming from a place of personal significance. And I don't think we have to. Ah, ooh, ooh, do tell, do tell. The, the key is to not be unaware of it. We tend to tell ourselves a story that it's not me, it's them, or that it's not like I'm, and this is where, where the worst anger act outs come from, is this belief that I'm not acting this way for me. It's because it's for something else. It's because of this cause that I'm tying to. In any situation, anger is a vehicle to meet a need. That need is for significance, whether it's personal selfish significance or significance for a cause or a group or whatever. But anger is just a vehicle to meet that need. The challenge is most of the time, anger is like using anger to meet the needs for significance is like taking a fighter jet to go from my house to downtown throw it on afterburner. It's going to get me there quickly, but it's going to be really inefficient. It's going to do a lot of damage and there's going to be a heck of a mess to clean up. And when I get there at the end, I may not be able to get out. Yeah. Right. Being aware, I'm feeling pissed off. Why am I pissed? Why am I angry? What is it that I'm focused on? And what is the meaning that I have given that thing that I'm focused on that has made me decide to use anger? Is there something better that I can do? Or is there a way that I can channel this anger into a healthier place? So really being aware of it, recognizing mm-hmm. it for what it is, yep. question it, mm-hmm. what triggered us so much about this? What work do we have to do on ourselves before we can show up for others? And it may not even be a what work do we need to do? Like long-term, yes. But if you're in the middle of a situation, you and I are having a conversation and you just slap me in the face and I'm like, I don't have time to work on me right now. Mm-hmm. Right? I have to respond to this situation, but I can still be curious and go, okay, why am I mad? Well, she just smacked me in the face. Okay. That is a reasonable reason for someone to feel anger. But more importantly, why did you smack me in the face? And you're like, there was a giant mosquito that was about to suck the lifeblood out of your cheek. Now we're in a different world. Yep. Right? You better show me the corpse on your hand. <laughs> <laughs> I hit you way too hard. It smashed into smithereens. It doesn't exist anymore. It evaporated. See, now we have a different conversation. But the point is, I can have that conversation and look for why would a reasonably intelligent, well-meaning human smack me in the face out of nowhere? Maybe it's because I was just coming across as someone who was not reasonably intelligent or well-meaning, and I needed to be slapped in the face. What do you think would be the biggest challenge facing your clients today? I know there's lots. What's the biggest, most prominent? What's the stickiest? I think it's actually the, really close to what we just talked about in that it's the, in the last two years, we've been under a constant sort of messaging of fear on purpose or not, don't care. Where we've been at for the last two years is fear and stress. When people are in that fight or flight, when we're in stress mode, we actually crave certainty more than anything else. Mm-hmm. We don't even care about accuracy which is why when there's someone yelling fire, fire, whatever, somebody going, everybody out that door will cause everyone to go out that door. Yes. Even if that door leads directly into the fire. As, some, as long as somebody stands up and says, follow me, go that way. Like that leadership, people will respond to that when they're in that state of fear and unease because we're, we're seeking certainty. It tends to rise to the top. So in the last two years, having felt this and being in that situation, a lot of people are attempting to create certainty by enforcing their rules on people. And their rule might be, I'll never cave to this thing. Or their rule might be, you absolutely need to cave to this thing. Or it might be, you need to change your behavior. Or you like it. Sometimes it's this big, 
I'm standing out in the middle of the street with a bullhorn and a sign yelling at people about it. Sometimes it's just, we're changing the rules here at the office. And now everyone has to use a blue pen when writing on, it's like, it can, it can show up in these little ways. And so we've become almost blind to it. Mm. We've started normalizing this idea that it's okay to enforce my certainty in my space and in the people around me. And if you're in a position of leadership, mm, that can be dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. You need rules. You need structure. People crave structure. We just talked about people crave certainty. This is where you get the 16-year-old, typically daughters, but also sons, where as soon as you lay down a boundary, they will immediately cross the boundary. You just need harsher consequences. Yeah. They, they, they do it not because they're being rebellious. They do it because they want the certainty of knowing that what you just said is actually true. Yeah. That they can trust you to be in the box that you said you would be in. We tamp it down a little bit, but we want structure. We want certainty. We want rules. Like I said, when we're feeling fear and we're feeling uncertain, certainty goes to the top of our list, even if that certainty doesn't feel good. Mm. So as a leader, whether it's a business owner, an executive, a middle manager, a head of a household, an older sibling, yep. creating certainty is a thing that everyone is looking for right now. And you can, do, you can do some very positive things by creating that certainty in that environment that you're in, that you're leading. But you need to make sure that it's not arbitrary certainty and that you're not doing it out of fear. Fascinating. What are some ways that people can step out of leading from fear? (sighs) Taking a deep breath is one. Again, it goes back to the curiosity. Mm. And it goes back to, and this is a dangerous phrase these days, but personal responsibility. It's asking yourself, why am I, why do I want to create this rule? And being really brutal with yourself uh, and very distrustful of any altruistic answer you give yourself. Mm. Well, I'm doing this so that everybody else can be okay. Are you really? Is it really so that everybody else can be okay or is it so that you can feel okay? How do you know? Well, you have to ask yourself that question. Is it about me? Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I afraid? Am I making, and, and if I am, what am I afraid of? Am I making this decision to, to mitigate my own risk? So many politicians on all so- sides of, of the aisle, when faced with any sort of crisis situation or any sort of, of hard decision that must be made, they don't make the decision based on the science, the facts, the long-term con- They don't do the research. They don't make wise policy decisions based on, have these decisions been made before? What have they done? Have we made decisions in the past that have had positive results? What have been the unintended consequences? They don't do that. They go, what will people vote for? Yes. I'm afraid of losing my seat. I'm afraid of not getting elected. I'm afraid of having to deal with angry constituents. Same thing when we're in a leadership position that is an unelected leadership position. I don't want to get fired. Mm-hmm. I've got a bunch of employees who are feeling angry and afraid because of whatever situation. Maybe somebody was an absolute jerk and they were a key employee that I'm not sure how I'm going to survive without that person being in the office anymore, but nobody in the office feels safe with them around because of the way they lost their cool or whatever, whatever it might have been. Mm-hmm. Okay. What decision am I making? Am I making the decision to fire that employee out of fear of what my, the rest of my employees are going to say or what they're going to think or whether or not they're going to quit? Or am I making the decision not to fire that employee out of my fear of losing productivity or my fear that I can't replace their skill set? How do we live by our values? <laughs> First, you got to know what they are. Okay. Secondly, you have to 
check out of putting what everybody else thinks above the fastest way someone abandons their core values is because of the fear of not fitting in or the fear of the fear of pressure. The next fastest way is if it has to do with survival. Yeah. Right. When, when, when you're at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy and you're just trying to get food, there is no such thing as a value. Your value is surviving. But once you're above that layer, then the fastest way we will lose it is because, which actually it's funny, they're tied together is we're afraid of getting kicked out of the tribe, which used to mean death. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why peer pressure is so effective, it's one of the reasons why bullying is so effective is because we as humans were so used to for such a long time being in groups of 40 to 150. And if you were kicked out of that group, you were alone in the wilderness, you were going to get eaten or you were going to starve to death because you couldn't catch food, eat food, or prepare food, cook food, have shelter. Like you couldn't do all of those things by yourself. Yeah. You couldn't be awake all the time to protect yourself. If we're not confident in what our values are, or if we are led to believe that our values are not, they're somehow bad, that is selfish for you to believe that you should be able to pick your own yogurt flavor. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm, but I really like blueberry. I just, if someone can convince us that our values are somehow antithetical to our actual values, how can you say you care about people when you will not stand up against marshmallows? Marshmallows rot so many teeth. Marshmallows cause so many sugar spikes. Marshmallows lead to diabetes. You're willing to let all of these people have their teeth fall out and be diabetic. How can you say that caring for people is a value of yours? We will do that. We're like, oh, what is my, I I thought my value was, you're right. I care about people. I've got to come out and stand up against marshmallows. I, I have to, like, I can't. But in the meantime, in the back of your head, you're like, but really marshmallows are like, isn't it, isn't it the people eating the marshmallows that are causing the problem? Isn't that, like, I don't. But is your value of personal responsibility there strong enough to stand up against that, right? But if someone can get your ego involved yeah. in, then you're going to, you, you can abandon your, abandon your values. The other thing is going back to the survival thing is money. We compromise our values all the time because quote, we can't afford it. Yep. I think I should be eating a sustainable carnivore diet, sustainable meat. Like I should be supporting grass fed hundred mile radius, you know, farm where the, the, the whole process of the cattle growing and doing their whole life actually adds to the, to the ecosystem, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff is there. I think I should be doing that, but Holy crap. Have you seen the price of ground grass fed beef versus regular? It's like three times I, as much. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, what are you willing to give up so that you can eat this way if that is part of your value system? Mm-hmm. So how often would you recommend people to uh, do a little bit of a reference check on their own values? Oftentimes, you know, when you look at organizations, you'll walk into an organization and they'll have their mission, they'll have their vision statement somewhere, and they'll have their values. And it's you know, on a beautiful placard somewhere. But how do you check into them? How do you ensure that you're showing up as your best self, as a leader, as a business owner, as a human being, and always ensuring that the values are that you decided upon a year ago, two years ago, five years ago are still relevant and mm-hmm. meaningful to you today? Hard version. Mm. Anytime you start feeling stressed, conflicted, mm-hmm. overwhelmed, don't say, oh, I'm just so stressed out. Oh, I'm, so, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed. Say, I'm feeling this. 
why am I feeling this? Oftentimes, it will be because there's been a value compromise. For example, I value health. I'm just, so, I'm just feeling so tired. Why is that? Well, I stayed up until two o'clock last night watching movies and drinking and... Oh. Eating potato chips. Mm-hmm. Thought health was a primary value of yours. And sleep is one of the key... Good, good sleep is like a foundation for good health. Uh, you chose not to get the sleep that you knew you were going to need. And this is the consequence of doing that. The reason you're feeling this way is because you compromised your value almost without fail. How often do you check in in your own values? Not as often as I should. <laughs> but yeah, when I'm feeling down, negative, slow, tired, pissed off, the biggest one is when I'm feeling conflicted. Mm. Like when I'm, when I'm like, ah, I just got this message and I'm not sure how, how I want to respond to this. I feel like I want to do this, but then I, but I'm not sure if that'll, right? Okay. I'm feeling conflicted. I'm feeling some confusion. I'm feeling uncertain here. When that happens, typically it is because my values, I've either lost sight of them or I've got two that seem to be in conflict with each other. Mm. And so it's sitting down and going, why am I feeling conflicted about this? Why would I not just respond? No, I don't do that. Like if I'm at a, if I'm at a party and someone says, you know, here, try the dessert. It's like, no, thanks. I don't eat sugar. Right. My, one of my, one of my decisions, my value is health. My decision is I don't eat sugar. They're like, oh, it's just a little piece. You know what? That's great. Feel free to have my piece. I don't need sugar. Mm-hmm. Right. But if I'm like, oh, I should, maybe, maybe just the one piece won't hurt. It's like, okay, we, now we have a conflict. Why do we have a conflict? Is it because I want this person to think well of me? Is it because I don't want them, want them questioning my lifestyle choices? Because I don't feel like I want to defend my position to not, my decision to not eat sugar? Mm. And if I don't want to defend my decision to not eat sugar, why is that? Is it because I've done it 5 million times and I'm just tired of it? Yeah. Or is it because, you know what? I'm not actually that dedicated to health and I don't want to defend that decision because I really, if I have to defend it and someone pushes back on it, I'm in a cave because I don't actually believe it. I'm doing it because somebody else told me I should. Leadership is such an inside job. Oh my God. What's the one thing that you wish you did better? Hmm. Probably lived my values. Okay. So this is me actively turning around and working, using my own tools on myself. I wish I was better at being who I want to be. At the same time, part of that, the part that I am the least good at, the part that I have the most opportunity for growth at, is that realizing I am exactly where I am solely as a result of decisions that I've made to this point and... I've always made the best decisions that I knew how to make at the time. Doesn't mean I didn't know there were better decisions. I just didn't know how to make them. And so giving myself the grace around that is not something that I'm, that I have. My skill set there has a lot of room for improvement. And that's probably the biggest part of the not being as good at, what, <laughs> at being who I want to be as there is just as far as room to get better. And then there's all the other things on top of that. Like I wish I was better at just saying, no, I don't do that. Or saying, I don't do that. Here's why in situations where I think it would be a positive influence on other people around me. Or spending more time with my kids as a father in the ways that I feel like I should, as opposed to in my office, et cetera. I just keep smacking my microphone around. Um, <laughs> there's all of that. And it's, and it's part of the expert's curse. We feel like we're, what we offer, what we do is never quite good enough. Like when someone comes to you, 
with a challenge, oftentimes it's a very simple solution, but we feel like, oh no, we, that can't be that simple. It's simple to us, but they've never heard of it or they've never known how to make that decision. Mm-hmm. We do the same thing to ourselves, right? We go, I should know. I'm an expert. I have all these tools. I know all these things. I should be doing better. And should is always that sign that one of our rules has been violated. And so, yeah, sorry, long-winded way of saying, giving myself grace about being better and being more of who I want to be. And I love how you use the word grace. I think grace is a word that we don't often use, especially over the last two years, Mm. having grace with ourselves, having grace with each other, Mm. having grace with the world. But I think at the fundamental, like everything that we've talked about today, I think that what I get from you and what I've learned from you is, you know, it does start with an awareness. You have to be aware cognitively, physically, mentally, spiritually. You need to listen and not just listen to hear, but listen to really understand. You need to become legitimately curious about how other people perceive things just because you might have the, you know, the, the magic sauce, but that's from your environment and your conditioning and you know everything about you. But that other person has, that has this whole entire backstory you have no idea about. So you have to get curious. You have to go deeper. I think all of us can get better at having a rigorous approach to our own values. Can't just be something on a wall. We have to live it, breathe it. We've got to tweak it, adjust it, ask us, how are we showing up today? Wow, I thought it didn't feel good. And then what do you do with it? So if you were in a meeting and it didn't really land the way that you wanted it to land, what do you do? Do you leave it? There's a million different things you could do. You could, could you go back to the team and say, guess, you know, team... I think I screwed up yesterday. I wanted this to be delivered this way and I don't think it landed. So let's just do a redo. I apologize. Sometimes I'm an idiot. This is what I really wanted. I need, let's have a good conversation around this and let's get us back on the rails. Mm-hmm. And then that grace piece is extraordinary. If you could see your younger self, you're just starting out. What advice would you give yourself? Don't kiss her. <laughs> <laughs> I have never heard that before. No, it's 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 probably that goes back to giving yourself grace. I've never I've I have for the longest time struggled with that. I can still sit down, and this is where Don't Kiss Her came from. I can still sit down and have the flashback of an embarrassing thing I did or said or didn't do. Or an opportunity that I missed on it if I had only said or done, it's like the hindsight being 2020, I can still have those pop up and feel all of the embarrassment, feel all of the, oh, you are such an idiot. Feel like all of that there that's still parked. Um, and then I can immediately have the conversation with myself. Listen, dude, you made the best decisions you knew how to make at the time. You were freaking, you were 12, 13, 16, whatever. I, I think if I could give myself advice that I would take. Aha, there's the difference. Um, it would be give yourself some slack. Don't give yourself complete freedom from, from consequences. Mm-hmm. Right? Understand that every decision we make has consequences. How we see those consequences, positive or negative, is entirely based on where we're at at the time. But every decision has ramifications and consequences. Cut yourself some slack. You're not going to always make the right decision. So strive to always do your best, knowing that your best is going to be different today than your best is going to be different tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that. What book, what should every business owner, every leader read and why? I think I'm going to go with Carnegie and not How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm. How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. Fascinating. Why that one? It's the earliest one that I'm aware of that lays out 
how to let go of all of the stuff that we can't control mm-hmm. and focus on positives. In particular, there's a, a lovely technique in there around basically asking yourself, what's the worst case scenario? Like, what's the worst that could possibly happen? Accepting that if you have to, that, okay, here's, an, here's if that's what it's got to be, then that's what it's got to be. And then asking the question, what could I do? What is anything that I could do to go at all, anything above worst case scenario? Because any of those are a bonus. Yeah. Right? Once you've accepted worst case scenario, then you're looking at bonuses rather than trying to hold on to things that you, you can't lose. But that's just one of the things. That, it, it gives you, in, in really simple terms, in very basic outlines, how to stop worrying and start living. It's pretty, I mean, it tells you what, it, what it's going to do. And I think that the oldies, it's like everything that I read now that's modern is some slant or twist or reapplication of the classics, the principles of success that have mm-hmm. always been the same. Methods are many, principles are few, methods will change, principles never do, right? How we state them might, but that principle of success of focusing on what you can control and dealing with, with what is in front of you and how do I make it better, I think is, I think that's key. I think everything else from a business perspective and even from a personal life perspective stems from that. Like my employees are revolting with whichever definition of revolting you want to use. Um, great. What's the worst case scenario? They could burn the building down or nobody would want to come in here. What do I do about it? And this is why my friends, Joss is who he is. Thank you so much for joining me today and joining us. I could talk to you forever and ever 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 and ever. And ever and ever. We can keep this going. Thank you for having me. It's been a fun. I love I love these conversations. I never know where they're gonna go. And half the time I talk too much, but it's it's been fun. It was brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Live Learn Lead with me, Allison Geskin. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow. And a great free way to support this podcast is to review and rate it. Always remember, my friends, that the most powerful thing you can be is you.